Okay, I'm going to ask everyone, if you will, to turn to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18. We had a story last week in Exodus 16 and 17 about the people grumbling. And at the end of 17, there was a story about Aaron and Hur, two people that came alongside Moses to hold up his arm because Moses couldn't do it by himself. Physically, he just wasn't able to hold up that staff by himself and he needed the support of friends. And that's what chapter 18 is about as well, is that not only was Moses not able to physically do everything that was demanded of a leader of Israel, spiritually, emotionally, just as far as teaching, he was going to need help. And that's what we're going to learn about today in Exodus chapter 18. And if you're in any type of leadership position now or ever will be, to me, this is one of the most crucial chapters in all of Scripture about what it means to lead well. Let's look here in Exodus chapter 18, verse 1. We have Jethro, who's the priest of Midian. He's Moses' father-in-law. Now, let's remember, if I can pause for a moment, that uh, Moses worked for this man for 40 years while he lived in the desert. Before call, God called Moses at the burning bush when he was 80 years old, 40 years before that, Moses was stuck in the desert, and uh, he found Jethro and was able to find a wife there as well, Jethro's daughter, and he found a job working for Jethro for 40 years. And so now Moses has led the people out of Egypt over to the region of Midian, the Sinai Peninsula, and then Moses' father-in-law, here he comes back. He's heard all that God's done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. And Jethro rejoiced for all that the Lord had done to Israel. Watch that. He's happy for Moses, but he's given the credit to the Lord. And that God had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, speaking of Jehovah, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know, which this was God's main point all along. Now Jethro knows that the Lord, Jehovah God, is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. Now, notice what he's doing there. I want, I want to say this to everybody who has in-laws this morning, okay? And someday, everybody listen, because someday you will have daughters-in-laws and sons-in-laws, most likely, okay? Um, Jethro starts out with Moses here, his son-in-law, praising him, saying, son, here's where you've done a really good job. My son-in-law's a winner. I, I really appreciate watching how you have grown. And then watch what he does next. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brings in a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now, a lot of times we read right over this. Watch what's happening. You've got Moses' side of the family, okay, and all the in-laws that go with that. And you've got Jethro and all his family and all the in-laws that go with that. And they're going to come together under one tent and have a big feast. In Appalachia, this is where we say, what could go wrong? All right? You, you got crazy Uncle Donnie over here with crazy Aunt Betsy. And when those two come, you know, they just speak before they think, if they even think at all. And it's going to be a mess. And the only way you can stop it from going badly is to do what? What does he do right in the middle of this verse? He brings a burnt offering which means they sit down and have a big dinner together, all right? 
Uncle Brian ain't going to say something stupid as long as you keep putting the food in his mouth, all right? As soon as the food's gone, all the in-laws need to leave. It's just the wise thing to do, all right? So uh, I, I want to say this just about my own family. Um, D and I, early on, uh, we, when we started dating, just after two or three weeks, she says, I'm going to take you down to meet my grandma. I knew we were serious. Not just have to meet parents, but you got to meet grandmas. I'm going to meet both grandmothers. Grandfather's not so important. you got to impress grandma. All right? So we would leave church in Morgantown every week, drive down to Fairmont, West Virginia. It's about a 20, 30-minute drive. And there we would go to Eloise Hayhurst, and she had this big, I didn't want to go the first time, but that old country cooking spread, I was just like, like, I... If you can imagine, guys, like, like we're going to go eat. If a girl told you we're going to go eat at my grandma's every week, a lot of you guys would run. All right? You're like, I don't know what to do. Spend all, it's the Lord's Day, Sunday afternoon. I need to do homework, whatever. After one week at Grandma Hayhurst, I was sold. I was like, let's get the grandma's, all right? I'm thinking about the cooking while I'm in church. We're going out there. So we get down there, and we're eating dinner together and just having fun. And uh, I'm still getting to know the family, getting to know the family. And then from there, we would go to the other grandma's across the other side of town of Fairmont. And then we would eat again. At 19 years old, my metabolism could handle it back then and so i would eat those two meals we'd get up we did that for three or four weeks and then uh on like the fifth week right after the semester started uh second semester of my sophomore year d was sick and didn't go to church and i remember sitting in church and i was like man i gotta go back to the dorm and eat that nasty dorm food and then i just thought well, why just because d's not with me doesn't mean i can't go to grandma's so I called D and I said, hey, did you think it'd be cool if I went down to Grandma's? She said, without me? I'm like, yeah. And she was like, sure. So I went down to Grandma's and I showed up and they were like, where's Dee Dee? I'm like, she's sick, but I came anyway. And they were like, okay. And so we just sat there and ate. And then I went over to the other Grandma's. And in hindsight, that's when the family says, that's the point at which you were in. All right? They said, we knew then you really liked us. Now, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, I really liked your food. All right? But it was. It was a great relationship. This is a key to in-law living is, man, just sit down and eat together. It will open up. When you enjoy your company around the table, it just opens up the doors for later conversations that might need to be had. It's the same thing in our church family. I got a picture here back when we first built the gym over here and we did the uh, Jamie Oliver show. And I remember they wanted me in the kitchen talking about cooking. And I told them, I'm like, I'm not going to be in the scene. I never cook anything. You got to get the ladies in here that really run this. So they, they brought them in. We got Barbara here and Jane and Miss Alice Lee. And uh, we, we came in here and we just talked about the importance of food and fellowship. And even Jamie got that, you know, he wasn't a believer necessarily at the time. And having these church dinners was just a dream that we have. So I, I just want to encourage you as a church family, listen, You've heard it said that the family that prays together stays together. I want to emphasize, man, the family that eats together doesn't fight as much, all right? I know that doesn't rhyme, but it's just there's something powerful about sitting around the dinner table and getting to know each other. And so I want to encourage you on Wednesday nights, man, if, you, if it's at all possible, be down here at 515 and help set up. Right at 530, we're going to say that prayer just try to get here as close to that as you can after work. Sit down at the table with some other families, maybe people you don't know so much. Learn their names. Go back and forth. The food is great, but it's, you know, it's not always about food. I mean, this week we're having baked steak, mashed potatoes, and corn in Appalachia. That's called manna from heaven, okay? 
So I just encourage you to come down and be a part of that. $6 a person, $12 a family. You can't beat it anywhere. Um, it, it's just a, it's a smoking good time, all right? So come on down. All right, so now they had the big dinner. All the in-laws, Jethro, he's just waxing on all day. Moses, you're so awesome. God's used you. It's a powerful thing. The next day, they wake up. Moses goes to work. And he's sitting and he's judging the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning to evening. And when Moses, the father-in-law, saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what you are doing, what, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? This is what I want you to Like all the people were coming to Moses and one at a time, he's over 2 million people, but any, any disruption they have, any disagreement, he's the mediator for all 2 million. 600,000 men would have the right to come to him. And they're just standing there all day. I mean, just picture going to the DMV in West Huntington, and there's only one window open, all right? I mean, that's like me. When I know I've got to go to the DMV to pay my 50 bucks for a new license so I can drive the car that I pay taxes on, on the roads that I pay taxes on. I mean, it's just like, well, that's a discussion for another day. But it's just like, it's, it's like pulling teeth. I don't want to go in there. I don't want to sit half a day. I want to take a half-day vacation to get my license renewed. Give me a root canal, all right? And this is how the people of Israel, and so Moses' father-in-law sees what's going on. He says, what is this you're doing? What, to say it again, like, what are you doing? And so Moses gives him straight-up answer. He says, well, it's, it's because the people come to me and inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make, them, I make known to them the statutes of God and his law. I've got to teach them the word. At this point, there was no Bible. No one else had been trained to teach the word. He's got to handle the problems for all those people. Now, what's getting ready to happen next, listen, couldn't happen if it were, probably weren't for family dinners and the relationship that Moses and Jethro had. Moses was the guy with his staff he had a direct line to God, the burning bush talking to him. But yet Jethro comes in and he says this, Moses, what you're doing is not good. Now, friends, I want you to think about the Bible. When is the first time in the Bible we see somebody looking at something and saying, man, this is not good? When is that? With Adam in the garden before Eve was created, God saw that Adam was alone. He said, this is not good. You see, none of us are designed to go through life by ourselves. I'm not saying we all have to be married, but I am saying this is meant to be a team deal. Like we said with the staff of Moses and Aaron and her, we are better together than we are by ourselves. So he continues. He says, you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. The Hebrew word here is to exhaust to the point of death. You're just going to wear yourselves out for this is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. You're not able, Moses. You, you just got to figure this out by yourself. So I'm just telling you, you can't keep running the schedule you're running. 
And it's not just going to wear you out. Notice it's in the plural here. You're going to wear yourselves out. Everybody else is tired of sitting in the DMV all day waiting to get to the one guy in the window. So you're going to have more grumbling and complaining because people aren't getting their spiritual needs met here because they all got to come to just one guy for counseling. We had a church consultant come in a couple years ago, and we were just saying, man, how can we do things better? And he came in, and he came to all three services at Ashland here and at ACC, made some observations for each campus, and then uh, he turned his direction toward me. And I've known this guy a number of years. He's one of the higher-ups in church leadership development and planning, planting across the country. And he had me do a chart. He says, I want you to write a chart of all the people who report directly to you if they've got a problem. So okay, so I started writing it down. 40 minutes later, this is what I came up with. Okay, here's me. Now I report to the shepherds, shepherds report me, we're one. Okay. I work with the missions committee. Youth pastor reports directly to me. Children's director reports directly to me. People doing visitation report directly to me. Young adult, directly to me. Small group leader, directly to me. Tech team, that leader of that group reports directly to me. Choir director reports directly to me. Worship leaders report directly to me. Wednesday night ministries, children taken care of, they report directly to me. HCC, Ashland, I'm a part of the leadership, reports to me. Deacons, deaconesses, they intern program. I meet with them every week for an hour, hour and a half. They report to me. Social Wednesday night dinners, if there's something going on over there, that comes to me. Sunday school, that comes to me. Housekeeping ultimately comes to my plate. Trustees ultimately comes to my plate if they have a major question. Sunday, not Sunday school again. Nominate committee, that should say. Mops, something going on there. They come and ask me about it. Finance, um, ultimately that comes back to me. I mean, it's just, you kind of seeing the point? And you know what Mike Lake said to me? What you're doing is not good. You're going to wear you and your people out. Sometimes this place can look like a DMV. And I, I meant to say this at the first service. Uh, didn't. I'm going to get that chance again. I'll say it tonight. Hope most of them are there. Just over the past four months, I don't know if it's been as noticeable out there as it has been in here, but every single staff member, both here and at Ashland, has had a major rewrite of their job description or a new person altogether is in that spot. And what that means is I've had to retrain just about every ministry leader in the church over the last four months. And it has worn me out. And I know a lot of y'all have tough jobs. And I, I'm not complaining. I'm just telling you a fact that when it's designed this way, it's unavoidable. And what happened is when half of these got wiped out in the matter of three months, it all came there. And it reminded me of why we had already started some of the leadership development process and it was better than what it could have been. 
I'm glad that Mike came what he did over a year and a half ago, or it would have been a total disaster, but we're still in the process of fixing this. And we're trying to fix it the way the Bible says to fix it. Before I go any further, some of you, if I would have you draw what does your life look like right now, it might be any worse than this. Except your kids' names are all here. And then your husband, and then your mother-in-law, and then you just fill in, whatever. Let alone work. And God would say to you through someone like me, your Jethro, what you're doing is not good. You're going to wear yourself out and everybody around you. So what does he do? Man, you've got to have a relationship to say this, these words. It says in verse 19, 18, 19, Jethro tells Moses, now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases before God. Their cases before God. What, what does that mean? What does it mean when the spiritual leader is representing his people for God? What do we call that? It's prayer. Your number one job, Moses, is to pray for your people's needs. Take your people before the throne of God. That's your number one job. Number one. And number two is this. You shall warn them about the statutes and law and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. So what's that? Number one job is prayer. And number two is what? Teach them the word of God. Open the scriptures to them. This is your job. We see the same thing in the New Testament. After the church started, you had 12 apostles. You had probably 50 to 100,000 people in the one church in Jerusalem at that time. It said, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, here you got the complainers, all right, the Greek Jews rose against the Hebrews, these are all Jews at the time, because their widows, the Greek widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution. They're not being taken care of. And that's a really important thing that the old ladies are getting the food they need. They need food, shelter, and clothing. That's extremely important. So the 12 got everybody in the church together. They said, man, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God in order to serve tables. As important it is that people eat, there's something more important than people eating physical food, and it's what? People getting their spiritual food from the word of God. So it would, it, this is not right. Remember, it's not right what you're doing. They're scrambling, Peter, James, John, trying to serve a meal. And they get together and they're like, what are we doing? This thing we're doing is not good. We're focusing on over here. And this word for serve tables is literally the Greek word for deek. For, it's where we get the word deacon. He says, we don't need to be doing the jobs of deacons. We, we need servants in the church to be handling the food, shelter, clothing thing with the widows of the church and the shut-ins. But we need to be focused on teaching the word of God. And they said, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. They're going to delegate this responsibility to somebody else so it's not on their plate anymore. But we will devote ourselves to what are the two most important things pastors do? Prayer and the ministry of the Word of God. It doesn't change from Old Testament to New. This is the emphasis of the pastor in the local church. And all these other things you're doing running around, it's not good. Moreover, 
Going back to what Jethro was telling Moses, here's how you're going to break it down, Moses. I'm going to see Moses like, well, I don't know how to do it. This is how you do it, Moses. Just watch. You're going to look for able men, gifted men, like we were talking about earlier, from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy. You trust them. They've got your back. If you can't trust somebody, you can't work with them. And they hate a bribe. And then you place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands. So you've got the 12 tribes. Then you're going to have somebody in charge of each tribe. And then those, are going to, those guys under them, each will be in charge of 1,000. And then under them, you're going to have guys that are in charge of 100. And then under them, you're going to have guys that are in charge of 50s. And then you're going to have guys that are just in charge of 10. Now, which are the most important? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. If you would ask, I had a general tell me this one time. But I, how many of you have been in the army? Anybody in here been in the army, in the military, or whatever? Who would the general say is the most important position in the army? They would not say the general. I heard it. The sergeants. It's the leaders of the 50s and 10s. Those are the most important. Those are the guys with their ears to the ground. And listen, our sergeants in this church are the small group leaders. They, these are the ones leading a group of 10. Now, if your group's 20, you need two sergeants, okay? The groups of 10s, these are the most important people at the base level, boots on the ground. So what do you do after you break them down in this leadership structure? It says, let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will be, bear the burden with you. So in other words, here's what it is. If the people of the church are in small groups, like the people of Israel, he broke them down. If they're all in groups of 10, 90% of the problems that need to be taken care of within that small group are going to be taken care of by the small group leaders. And if the small group leaders say, man, I got a bigger problem, then they need someone who's a small group director, someone who is overseeing five small group leaders overseeing 50, then they take the problem to them. Can you give me some biblical advice? This is going on our group. This is going on with this individual. Can you coach me how to deal with this situation? And then from those 50s, then you've got the staff member who's in charge of small groups. And then if that doesn't work, it click, 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 goes to Tony. Tony, how can we handle this situation? And then he says to them, and they pass it down to the small group leaders. Here's how we're going to do small groups. Here's how we're going to minister somebody. I, mean, I just got to tell you this, we've got small groups. If you've come here very long and you're not a part of a small group and you continue to not be a small group, sooner or later, I just promise you, we are going to disappoint you. Because we are moving more and more to this model of care as opposed to the model of care that you will see in most churches. What do I mean by that? Every once in a while, I'll have somebody, and I, and I work with other guys, especially youth pastors on other staff, that uh, work in the old Baptist model where the senior pastor is the CEO, okay? Even that string that I had earlier is not good because I'm in the middle of all this thing. The old senior pastor model is the guys at the top and every decision that's made. I, mean, I, I know a guy that I worked with youth ministry-wise. I asked, hey, can we do this in your gym? And he said, man, I can't get it on the schedule. The schedule's made a month ahead of time, and the pastor has to approve every meeting in the church a month in advance. He goes through the entire church calendar, checking off everything that happens, make sure it happens. Man, people call me all the time. Hey, who's in the gym tonight? You know what my answer is? I don't have any idea. 
Well, aren't you the pastor there? Yep. Well, then why don't you know who's in the gym? Because that's not part of the pastor's job. Well, can you book me for the gym? Nope. Well, aren't you the pastor there? Yep. That's not part of my job. Well, who do I need to talk to? Kyle Butcher? Oh, is he like a deacon or on staff? Nope. He's just a member here, but he's in charge of the gym. Well, how do I get a hold of him? I can give you your number. Okay? It, it's just, and it shocks people sometimes when they come here. Sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, hey, I think we need to do this. And I'll say, that's a great idea. And then they'll come back two weeks later and say, this still hasn't happened. I said, I know. You haven't done anything about it. All right? They say it to me, expecting me to fix it like I'm in charge. Or sometimes they'll say, I'll say it's a great idea, and then they'll stand up in a group of people and say, Pastor Steve has anointed me, duly representative. Now I'm in charge of this. No, I mean, if I tell you something's a good idea, it just means that and nothing more than that. It's a good idea, okay? I am more and more not, the more our church grows, the less I got to have my hand on it, and the more I got to focus on praying for you and your needs and delivering to you what the Word of God says. And I, I just tell you, like, I asked Jerry Salton this morning, how many of you are in trustees? Raise your hand in trustee. If you're in trustees right now, raise your hand high, okay? We, we, we got a few trustees in here this morning. How many, Tanya, how many trustee meetings have I attended in the past year? Not one. <gasps> if you're from the old senior pastor model, you're taking the shakes right now, okay? I don't know what they're doing. People say, well, what are we doing this construction project? I don't know. When's it going to be fixed? I don't know. Ask a trustee. Why? It's not the ministry of the Word of God, and it's not prayer. And the more I can be handing these things off, the more I'm doing it. Why? Because the old pattern's not good. It's not meant you will wear yourselves, and out, wear yourselves out and those around you. And so this is what he says. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. See, it's the natural thing for human beings throughout all history is to want a king. To want a King Saul. Just make the decision. Shorten the process. But that doesn't lead to peace. It just leads to burnout. And it leads to hierarchy, and it leads to disunity. So what does Moses do? So he say, well, you know what? I'm the man from God. I'm the one with the staff. No, he listened. Look at the humility of Moses here. He listened to the voice of his father-in-law, and he did it all, everything that he says. And so Moses chose gifted men out of all of Israel, and he made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands and of hundreds and of fifties and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. And any hard case, they brought to Moses, but any small matter, they decided themselves. So let's do some uh, personal application. I, I want to ask you just this for your life. If this is the burnout scale... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. If you choose a 10, you're dead, all right? You've died of a heart attack. I want you to tell someone around you, two or three people around you, just open up. They're not going to counsel you right now, but just say, on a scale of one to 10, I am match number fill in the blank, all right? Go. Okay, if anybody said nine and a half, then take them to their small group leader to get counseling, all right? 
They're about to die. All right, now some of you are explaining why you're at eight or nine, but I'm going to keep us moving, okay? Here's what I want to tell you this morning. I'm glad you guys are excited about this, but now I need to talk and you need to listen. All right, here we go. Here, here's what I want to tell you. If you're in this range, you're doing Moses stuff. And if you've got so much on you that you're saying, I can't delegate it to somebody else, then you need to drop something. God did not design you to live at this end of the spectrum. You're bearing too much on your shoulders. And here's what you need. Okay? What do you mean? I need a horse? Uh, I have a great uncle that raises horses in Kentucky. We went out there to visit him one time. He had some of these big horses. He told me this, and when he told me it, I didn't believe it, so I later I Googled it, and sure enough, he was right. One of these draft horses, okay, is able to pull 8,000 pounds by himself, four times by himself. But the moment that he straps these two together, okay, and they start pulling, and the other one can pull 8,000 by himself, how much would you expect them to be able to pull two of them together? 16,000 pounds. That's what you would expect, right? The moment he hooks up the two of them together without any training or anything, together they can pull 24,000 pounds. Their productivity goes up 50% as soon as you put them together. There's a term for that in physics. It's called synergy. And it can't be explained through math. It just, it works. It's a social phenomenon. It's a scientific phenomenon. But not only that, listen to this. Once these two get trained and get used to working together, they can pull up to 32,000 pounds. Their productivity goes up 100%. Why? Because even horses aren't meant to work by themselves. We're meant and we're designed to be better together. Team up. Somebody you trust. Learn to work together. Church family, this is what I'm telling you. If we can get a 1,000 people that attend here to all be pulling in the same direction, it is so much more effective. If we can get Ashland and Canova and HCC and other churches in the area to all pull in the same direction, synergy starts happening, and that's where you see the kingdom of God principles start breaking loose in a community. But it starts with the local congregation doing that. And that leads us to point number three, okay? Succession planning. This is what I was challenged on personally. The, key, the root word to succession is what? Success. And so this is what I, I've really noticed uh, over the last four months just from picking up a lot of the, the plates that were falling is, man, I've got to do a better job of, of accessing staff and creating development plans and developing them as my successors. We need to do that at every level of the church. I'll just model for my own life how I'm doing it right now. Like, I'm praying that John Estes that we brought in, I just talked to him two or three months ago, but I just saw something in him. We just felt synergy almost right away. That working together, it's my job 
to recruit him to take my place because I need to announce something to you. I'm leaving. I don't know when I'm leaving, but someday I'm leaving, just like every other pastor has, okay? I'm going to be out. And someday, and, and this is what especially churches that are as large as ours or larger, when you have a pastor that's been there a long time and he ups and goes and there hasn't been a succession plan where he's been developing someone to come in behind him, it usually goes very poorly for those churches. So this is what I'm doing. Not only for me, but I'm encouraging John, train him to be, oversee the youth and those adults and then more and more and more. And while I'm doing that, you're going to see him training John and Hunter to do more and more and more so that we are training up. On the small group leader level, you should be, if you're a small group leader, you are developing someone to take your place as small group leader or when your group grows to multiply and have other small groups grow. And whoever's been working with the trustees, whoever the chair is, I've been challenging them all year to be grooming whoever's going to be the chair next year. Don't wait the next year to figure it out. Figure it out in January who you're going to work with this entire year to take your place so that every position in the church, everyone, we're all training our replacements. We have succession level planning at every level of church leadership. That's what we have to do, church family. And this has to drive who we are. This leadership development philosophy that Jethro gave to Moses, no, no matter what we're doing, we're always discipling someone, developing in them the character and competencies to do whatever we're doing with the hope that maybe they'll do it even better. So here's the final verse I want to give you. And I know a lot of you need to hear this verse, and I'm preaching it to myself for the third time today. Here it is. I'm going to quote a famous theologian. She was in the movie 9 to 5. Her name's Dolly Parton. Okay, she said, the world only needs one savior and you're not it. So get down off the cross, buddy. And for a lot of us, myself included, I got to get down off the cross. I'm not this church's savior. You've got Jesus. You don't need me. All you need me to do is do what Jesus tells me to do in his word. And whatever you're struggling with right now, whatever pressure that you're bearing on your shoulders right now, I got news for you. You weren't meant to bear it all alone. There's only one man out there that's big enough and bad enough and strong enough and good enough to bear the sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's by the name of Jesus and his wounds that all of us have been healed. And nobody can do that for you but Jesus, including yourself. So get down off the cross, Dusty. Get down off the cross, Muncie. Kathy. Stephen. There's only one man that can bear all that weight. And you're not him. And mamas, you're not her. Because the first priority for any leader is to do what? To bring the needs of the people to Jesus.
And once you give him that weight, he doesn't need you to carry it anymore. 